We're going to read this passage from 2 Chronicles and uh, 15. Uh, the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles are the telling of the history of Israel and of Judah uh, under the monarchs, under the kings, and uh, what happened uh, really from the time of Saul and King David onwards, and how they, there was a rise and a fall of spirituality, almost on a seasonal way, that there was people came back to God and then fell away from God. And the life of the nation was not always caught up with an interest in the things of God. And this is Israel, this is God's people. And so the story we're reading today is about one of the good kings, a king called Asa, who in one of his better moments calls the people to return to God. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. Now, this man is otherwise not known of in the Scriptures. No one knows who he was, where he came from, or anything else about him. He appears one time only. Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa, that's the king, and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he'll forsake you. For a long time Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in. For great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city. For God troubled them with every sort of distress. But you take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin, from the cities that he'd taken in the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who were residing with them. For great numbers had deserted him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with them. him. They were gathered at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year of the reign of Asa. They sacrificed to the Lord on that day from the spoil they had brought, 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. But that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with horns. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with, with their whole desire. And he was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest all around. For the last last month or so, we've been looking at this whole question of whether the city matters to God and whether what the place the church has in the city. And I've been making a case for God's interest in London. I think many of us have been wrestling with what does it mean as, as individuals and as a church to be called to the city at this time, and uh, to be here on mission, which is just to say, with Christ's purpose, with Christ's 
desire at work in our hearts for the sake of the city and not for the sake of ourselves. Why are we here and what are we doing? And uh, I certainly have felt just stirred by God again about the calling to be here, what it means to be in London right now. And I love the city, as I'm sure you've gathered. But one of the things that's true of any great city, and London's no exception, is that there are many powers at work in a city, many strong agendas at work in a city, different visions of what the good life is and different visions of how to achieve the good life. And uh, these agendas are constantly in competition with one another, aren't they? You've got, for example, you have the power of the politicians and their particular vision for what ought to what life ought to, what the good life is uh, in our nation and indeed in, in our city. And uh, certainly the power of politics does not seem to have diminished, even if we don't have a massive confidence in politicians. Nevertheless, we still get very passionate about politics. We still believe that there's some kind of answer there and that they are, what it matters, the way we're being led politically. Then there are the power of the businesses, enormous international businesses with vested interests that kind of operate on the idea that, that the world is, is going to be improved by capitalism and that the more we innovate and the more we, um, we, we can market our goods, the better the world will become. The more jobs we can offer, the wealthier we all get. And so there's that powerful lobby group, that powerful agenda at work in our city. There's the, the powerful uh, group of the intellectuals, particularly represented in the, in the universities, um, that we have a city with some of the best universities in the world. And one of the things that's been true of the universities for the last couple of centuries or so is the belief that we can think our way to a better world. That there is a possibility of improving the world by better thinking, better research, better arguments, better essays, better products, and all this kind of thing. Which is, and that the universities are the temple to the worship of reason, and the worship of intellect. So that's one other massive agenda that's at work in our city. Then there's the, the media. Um, London is home to, still home to the, the most important television channels in the nation. Um, it's home to the ma- most important newspapers in the nation. And there is this, all this agenda, usually slightly left-leaning, isn't it, of the, of the media. And a different agenda for what the good life is and the power that's at work through them. But listen, friends, what I, what I want to speak to you about today is the power that's at work that most Londoners are either not aware of or have entirely forgotten, which is the power of the living God in, and his involvement in the city. His is the invisible hand that is at work and that is at working out his promises. In the Bible, there are there are these certain convictions about God and his activity in the world, about him being involved. You see it in the way they pray in Acts chapter 4. It says, Truly in this city, speaking about Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand or your plan had predestined to take place. What they're saying is that Behind all the activities of man, and we could apply it to our present day, the politicians, the businesses, the intellectuals, the media, and all the rest of it, behind all of it, there is the invisible hand of God working out his plans and purposes in the world. That God is ultimately sovereign and at work. 
And the thing about God's work is it, it seems to work on two speeds. There's the slow work, his almost unseen, steady work. Peter talks about God's slow work in this way. He says that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So we're in a hurry always, aren't we, to see things change, to see things happen, to see the world impacted, to see good, good flourish. And Peter says, God's not on the same agenda as you. Sometimes he works, sometimes time is, 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 is just different in the way God perceives things. And one of the ways he works is in a very slow, slow way. And I, as a pastor, you know, I have to relax into that. I'm, I'm just confident that um, God is doing what he wants to do in the world. It's what I just use the title of a book last week that um, the early church described as a patient ferment. You know when you ferment beer and there was this idea that the work of the gospel and the mission of the church in the world, they just patiently let the gospel loose and as Jesus is preached in the world, transformation just happened slowly, slowly, slowly until an empire was turned upside down over the course of three or four hundred years. And I can't predict the future of London, what's going to happen in the years to come, whether in three or four hundred years there will be a similar impact by the gospel and by Jesus, and I'm okay with that. God can do whatever he wants. But what I want to speak to you about today is the fact that sometimes God acts with intense speed, that there is the unfolding of his plans can work out rapidly. That whereas sometimes you can picture it like this, the work of God is like the tide slowly coming in over the hours. Occasionally, God changes cities and nations with more of the impact like a tidal wave when it comes in or like a tsunami. And God can turn situations around with incredible speed. The language that we use to describe this is, uh, we call it revival. It's a really, really sort of Christian word that describes what's happened in the history of the world. That at moments, things have been pottering along, and then suddenly, dramatically, whole cities and whole nations have been transformed by God come, coming and doing something extraordinary like a tsunami. And if you're not used to going to church, perhaps you, you have no idea what I'm talking about. And that's fine. Um, hopefully you'll get a little bit more idea by the end of today. But you know, this works its way out on two levels. It's true at the level of the individual. That sometimes God work, can work in your life with intense speed. And perhaps you're the kind of person who has... Um, who has struggled along for time, maybe years, wondering if your life can ever change, wondering if you can experience hope and the change that you desired. And you may have grown despairing and hopeless that, that anything good can happen in your life, that you can, you can experience the transformation that you long for, the kind of life and life change that you desire, and you've become resigned to the long struggle. And I want to encourage you that sometimes God works with intense speed in an individual's life. That it can be a personal revival. Some of the Psalms pray, revive me, O God. 
And there's a desire that God's power would break in and change you even overnight. I've seen enough people whose lives have been turned around that quickly to be able to stand before you today with absolute confidence and say, God can do that for you. Even today, he could do that in your life. But it's not just true at the level of the individual. Sometimes it happens, as I've been saying, in entire cities and entire nations. That occasionally, there is an extraordinary work of God that people who had no interest in God suddenly want to know him and know who he is. You can see this happening at many, many points throughout the Bible. Last year we did a little series on the story of Jonah going to preach in the city of Nineveh, one of the greatest cities, if not the greatest city at that time in the world. And Nineveh was transformed within a day or two when Jonah went there as a missionary to tell them about the living God. Then there's the story of Jerusalem. Just shortly after the the resurrection of Jesus, the early church was just a, a small group of people not dissimilar from the group that we are, we are today, but within a few days, thousands of people had, had, had rallied to understand and want to know who Jesus is. And they, their cry was, how can we be saved? And this hasn't just happened in biblical history. In the early 1700s, London was known as a place that was addicted to, um, to alcohol, and to kind of a, a, a kind of a licentious lifestyle. And particularly, there were gin houses on almost every street in London. It was one of the marks of London that gin was being brewed all over the place and, uh, because people just could not have enough alcohol to satisfy their, their longing. That the, 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 the nation, and particularly this city, was in the grip of a kind of breakdown. And it had been, the precursor was a spiritual breakdown, the emptying of the churches. And in about the 1730s, the city began to change very rapidly because of the work of a few men who started preaching the gospel, preaching about Jesus and his power to change people's lives. Initially, they were preaching in little churches, but they couldn't couldn't pack enough people into the churches. People were standing around the walls, and they realized that there was a need to preach to larger groups. So they began doing what was actually considered really weird at the time and preaching in fields and out in open spaces and in the parks in London and in Trafalgar Square and these kinds of places and actually maybe not Trafalgar Square. Um, But certainly in Kennington there was a large open space. Most of it's been built upon now. And up to 20,000 people gathered there to hear the preaching of one of these gospel preachers. And these men were called George Whitfield, John Wesley, and they had a few other friends who were involved in this work. And within the space of a few short years, what was death in the churches and spiritual death in the nation was turned around very rapidly. And this was the power of God. This is what we call revival. And in one sense, from your perspective, it doesn't really matter whether it happens to you as the individual or to the whole nation. The only point is that you have to be right with God. But my heart is that God would do this in our city. And my question I want to ask today is, what does it look like when God starts to work like this in people's lives and in 
whether it's individuals or whole cities. Just going back to 2 Chronicles 15, we need to understand something of the picture of what the situation was in the nation at the time. Just look at verse 3. It says, For a long time Israel was without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. But when in their distress, he says, they turned to the Lord and sought him. It says in verse 5, in those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in. I want to jump off from what he's telling us about the situation of people's hearts and in, in general in the nation to understand what happened when God began to move. And I want to show you three things that happened very rapidly when God started to work in people's lives. So the first is a turning to God himself, and particularly a turning to God from idolatry. He says that they were, he started off and says that for a long time Israel was without the true God. So here we are, we imagine a people who for one time had been worshipping the God of Israel, but for whatever reason they'd fallen away from becoming, being worshippers of the God of Israel. And at what point, were they at then that point no longer worshippers? And the answer of course is no. He tells us a little bit later on that instead they turned to detestable idols. It's in verse 8. That the nation became full of all these other idols and gods that they began to worship. And I tried to make the point to you just a few weeks ago that even though the city that we're in can be understood as a secular city, which you know, we describe as being outside the temple. That's what the word profane means. That to be a secular city means that there's a place for worship and, the, and London is known as a place of non-worship. And yet the reality is that no heart cannot worship. That hearts have to worship. That if you stop worshipping the living God, your heart is merely oriented to other objects of worship. And London is one of the places where you see this more clearly than anywhere else on the planet. That people's hearts are moved, if they are moved away from the living God as the object of worship, then it doesn't mean that Londoners are not worshippers. It merely means that their hearts are captivated by new things to worship. And perhaps the most prevalent among them, as we, we were describing some time back, are the, the gods of money, sex, and power, or success. But here's the terrifying thing about worshipping idols like this. The Bible tells us that when we become like the things that we worship, that the things you most delight in in life begin to shape you and transform your own heart and the way you live. Whatever is the object of your affection begins to imprint itself upon your very being and change you to become like it. So if you are somebody who's caught up, as so much of our city is, with the worship of of money, and of materialism, and as a possession of material goods, so that we pursue more and more um, acquisition, and earning more money, and bigger houses, and better things, what does that do to you if you become like the thing you worship? It turns you into somebody who's greedy, somebody who's cold, somebody who's compassionless. If the city worships the God of sensuality and of sex, And we become like what we worship. What does this do to us? The Israelites at the time that this was written also worshipped gods of sex. They had fertility gods that they would worship. Where you'd have to go and sleep with temple prostitutes outside the temple. In order to see 
fruitfulness on the land. What happens when you worship gods of sex and sensuality? What happens to your heart? And the answer, of course, is that you become enslaved to lusts, enslaved to desires that you can no longer control. I find it amazing that whenever we hear these fresh revelations breaking in the news almost on a daily basis of women who put up their hand and say, me too, I was, I was harassed, I was abused, or I was mistreated in a sexual manner by this person or that person, this respectable public figure. I find it amazing that every time it happens, there's a fresh intake of breath, like, how could that happen? Who could do such a thing? And we forget that we have, in the Western world, sold ourselves to the God of sex for generations now. That when you take away the boundaries of what makes sex safe, what makes it, gives it God-given goodness since he created it and not us. And when you make it something that you want to possess and worship for your own satisfaction, then our hearts begin to be formed by this God. And for many of us, this, you've experienced this already. Experienced the power of what happens when you give yourself over to this that what began as a desire to find satisfaction becomes an uncontainable dragon of lust in the soul. And that every time you feed it to gain satisfaction, its power over you grows and does not diminish. You think one last time, but all you do is give it more strength, more control over your life, and you become a slave to lust. And when we consider what is happening in our nation, when we hear about these figures and what must be totally ubiquitous and prevalent at every level of society that people experience this kind of sexual harassment and abuse, and many of you may have experienced it yourselves, you do not have to be very smart to figure out where the root lies. We cannot worship the God of sex and then not expect there to be repercussions. The same is true with the God of success or of power. That if people stop worshiping the living God and start worshiping status and achievement and kudos and the desire to make something with your life and to somehow make your name last by being important which most of us feel that tension, that pull on a day-to-day basis, don't we, to live a significant life, then how does this God begin to shape us? It shapes the way we understand the world, that all of life is graded on a, on a, a grading, ranking system where people's worth is equal to their achievement, where you love and respect those more who have achieved more and you love and respect those less who have achieved less. That as we sell ourselves to the idols, it begins to shape us and transform us and make us in our own image. Now, of course, sooner or later, most people realize at some point in their life that the idol they've been worshiping doesn't work. That as they've given themselves over to this particular form of worship, they've experienced it's powerlessness. 
to really deal with the desires in the heart, to satisfy soul, desire, and longing. You ask yourself what this modern phenomenon of a midlife crisis is. Most of you haven't reached that point yet. What is a midlife crisis? A midlife crisis is an idolatry crisis. So when you realize that the idols that you were pursuing for decades have not given and not delivered what you hoped they would deliver. So you start trying new things. Go and buy a yacht or a motorbike or um, whatever it is. And particularly men seem vulnerable to this, don't they? Because they're so fixated in their worship of these idols. When the idols turn out to be a massive disappointment, they try new ones. One of the characteristics of the generation that, you know, that we're in, millennials, is that millennials seem to be those who've experienced a midlife crisis about two decades early, right? <laughs> so you feel that angst, that, that angst, that desire for meaning, that desire for purpose, that once upon a time people didn't experience until their 40s or 50s, but millennials get it in their early 20s or earlier. A longing to find meaning in the world. And this is why I think it's one of the greatest privileges to be doing what we're doing as a church at this point in history. Because I see a whole generation who are hungry for meaning. And I believe that we have meaning to offer. What happens then when people realize their idols don't work? Some people double down. And they try to be better worshippers. Okay, money hasn't delivered to this point, so I just need more. Sex hasn't delivered to this point, so I just need more. Success hasn't delivered at this point, hasn't given me the satisfied life that I want, so I just need to work harder and achieve more and get more letters behind my name and more kudos and more prestige. Some people double down. Some people sink into the despair of hopelessness. But they suddenly realize, they hit a wall and realize that the things they've been chasing for so long aren't going to give them what they want and there can't be, therefore be anything in life that gives us what we want. I think that's a, that's a good place to be in. I think that's where Israel was at this moment when God began to speak to them. For a long time, Israel was out without the true God. And in their distress, they turn to the Lord. What he tells us, what the prophet told Asa, was that God is ready for you at that moment. If you seek him, he'll be found by you, he says. When in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. I want to ask you, do you believe that that's possible for you personally? That you could actually find what you're looking for? Do you believe that this is the hope for an entire city? That maybe at some point London will hit a wall and realize that the gods we worship don't work. When that happens, people turn from their idols to the living God. That's the first thing I want to show you here. Here's the second thing. At this point, people also turn 
to holiness. Most people think that they're good. I think if you ask the average Londoner if you're living a good life, most people will say that they think that they are good. But most people would not describe themselves as holy. Now in the Bible, those two words mean the same thing. To be good is to be holy, and to be holy is to be good. But you see, there's a distinction we've made. To be good is to be right in terms of the way I define right and wrong in our minds. That there's a right and a wrong, a code of right and wrong in my own mind. And as long as I'm living according to my own code, I can call myself good. But of course, the word holy carries with it the baggage of a God over us. A God who alone can define what good and bad is, what right and wrong is, what justice and evil is, what righteousness is and unrighteousness. If holy involves God, then suddenly we have to recalibrate our understanding of right and wrong, don't we? Now he tells us here what happens when people walk away from God. He says, for a long time Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. The same pattern has worked its way out through history time and time again. That whenever people have turned away from God, they have become, in the technical philosophical language, moral relativists. It simply means, as it constantly says in the book of Judges, that people do what is right in their own eyes. If I define what is right and wrong, then I only do what is right in my own eyes. Which, of course, is a fine assumption to live your life providing that there is no one over you. Providing that there is not somebody bigger than you. Somebody who is a lawgiver, whose rules and whose ways do not change. We saw the same pattern. You said in Israel, they were without teaching, priests and without law, and people begin to do what's right in their own eyes. And we've seen the same pattern work its way out in our own city. One of the things that most puzzles me is the strong sense of moral righteousness that everybody has when no one knows where morals come from. Everybody stands up in judgment over another and says, this is right and this is wrong and what this politician is is leading to is right and what this politician is doing is wrong and what this public figure is, is is advocating for is right, and what this sleazy public figure has done is wrong. And we have this moral grid through which we constantly judge the world. But nobody is asking, where do the morals come from in the first place? And if we don't have an agreed set of morals in which we can judge the world, then who's to say whether this is right or that is right, or this is wrong or that's wrong? And what you end up with is what Paul describes in Romans. He says, claiming to be wise. So he's talking about people who turn their backs on God because they think it's cleverer to reject God. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. 
and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And all those have become idolaters in the way that I've been describing. And then he says, this is what God does. He says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. When people turn their back on God, Paul says that their minds actually become dimmed. Their consciences become dimmed. And God allows the heart to pursue whatever it wants to pursue so that right and wrong become redefined according to the current fashions of the day. So you ask yourself, why is it that the modern culture that we live in, the society we live in in modern Britain is experiencing rapid flux and change? So that moral questions are constantly up for grabs. And moral morality is constantly being redefined. The answer is because we are set adrift from God. Jesus says that we are to build our lives on him and his word, that he is a only solid ground. But what happens when you, are, when you cut the moorings and we go adrift from God and from his unchanging nature? It means that everything is suddenly up for grabs. And that what was a given yesterday is no longer a given today. And that, you know, you think you're so progressive because you, you are with the times. But you know your grandchildren will look at you as a moral monster if we carry on along this train. Because change is rapid when you walk away from God. But one of the evidences when God starts to move on people's hearts, perhaps the first thing that people begin to experience is moral conviction. When the Holy Spirit starts to work in people, even individuals and sometimes in whole cities, the first thing people begin to experience is the sickening sense that we've done wrong and the awful sense that God is holy. And when people experience this, it creates the overwhelming desire to be made right with God. To have your life cleansed. To experience forgiveness. To have the guilt taken away. And to know that you can stand before him forgiven. For them, in the story we read, it meant the giving of sacrifices. It meant that they brought 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep to kill at the altar because they felt the weight of their sin and the need actually to atone for it and to be made right with God. But friends, I, I want to tell you that that is unnecessary today. The Bible tells us that if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer as a cow sanctify for the purification of the flesh, and he's talking about all the sacrificial stuff that happened in the Old Testament, what we've been reading about in the story. He says, how much more 
will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. When people begin to turn towards holiness, the only hope you have is that Jesus' death is enough for you. And the promise of the scriptures is that it is. That the blood of Jesus can cleanse you from every wrong thing you have said, you have thought, and you have done. Not only in the past, but also in the present and into the future. And the Bible says by that one sacrifice that happened once in history, over 2,000 years ago, you can be clean for all time. That's the second kind of turning that happens, turning to holiness, and here's the last. When God starts to move on people in this kind of power, this speed, revival, there is a turning to happiness. I think that happiness is the basic human quest. I think the question of what will make me happy is the fundamental motive for everything you do. And what the, bio, the writer here tells us is that at the time when the people had wandered away from God, they were not happy. It says in their distress they turned to the Lord. He says, in those times there was no peace to him who went out, to him who came in. For great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the land. They were broken in pieces. They were troubled with every sort of distress. What the Bible shows us, what is true to human experience and has been borne out by countless testimonies, is that sin simply does not satisfy. That when you buy into the seduction, you're buying into a lie. That sin's lie is to tell you that God's way won't work, that you can have this and it will make you happy. But then when you ask yourself, did it work? Did it make me happy? All you realize that you are left with is an afflicted conscience and a guilty heart. In Psalm 68, it tells us that God settles the solitary in a home. He leads the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. He's describing the existential, the experience of what it is to live a life away from God, that you dwell in a desert. You dwell somewhere where you feel that there is nothing to satisfy your soul's thirst. And this was true of the Israelites. There was no peace. They were broken in pieces. They, was, they had fragmented and distressed lives. And I think that we are seeing the exact same things happening today. Even by objective measures, London is the most unhappy city in the whole of the UK. Apparently, Northern Ireland is the happiest. London is the unhappiest. And I find it fascinating because London is probably the one place where you see the most prevalence of 
a desire to run from God, don't you? The strongest urgency to live a life in worship of all the idols we've been describing. And yet it's strange that as we give our lives over to these things, so few people are asking, does it work? Does it deliver? It's possible that you are a Christian and that you are aware of this dynamic in your own life even at this very moment. That the rebellious dwell in a parched land. I know it on a day-to-day basis in my own life that there are moments when I feel tempted to disobey God. But I'm also conscious from bitter experience that whenever I make that decision, I experience the parching thirst of what it is to be away from God. What it is to feel the bitter fruit of your own rebellion. And yet, what he tells us here is that when God begins to move, joy comes very quickly. As soon as these people recommit their lives to God, it says they swore an oath in verse 14, and with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with horns, there is incredible joy in Israel because they know they've returned to God. And it says all Judah rejoiced over the oath. They were happy about it. For they'd sworn with all their heart and sought him with their whole desire and he was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest all around. Can all of this happen? Can it happen in your own life? Can it happen in a, in a city? Could London actually be turned around even overnight? I was so pleased to see an article um, by a man I admired very much, Terry Virgo, in the premier Christianity magazine this week, and he was talking about revival. And he starts recalling some of the stories of revivals that have happened in history. He says that in the 1859 revival that had its origins in New York, on 23rd of September, 1857, Jeremiah Lamphere, which is just one of the great names of history, a city missionary began a lunchtime prayer meeting. After half an hour, only half a dozen came. There were six people in a room praying together. But he says the following week, 20 turned up and then 40. And within a few months, following a financial crisis in New York, 10,000 people were gathering for lunchtime prayer meetings with many churches opening their doors for prayer. Eventually, the dam broke and floods of power led to more than a million people being added to American churches over the following three years. This is a bizarre moment in history. Only God does this. He says that revival then broke out in Ulster, it's Northern Ireland, and ultimately right across the UK, resulting in a million being added to the British church. Dr. Edwin Orr, in his classic, The Second Evangelical Awakening in Britain, told how town prayer meetings began to multiply, sometimes gathering hundreds of believers, and then God broke through. Theatres and circus tents were employed to gather the vast crowds pressing in to hear the gospel. 
Often painful conviction gripped those seeking salvation and long queues of people converged on places where the gospel was being preached. Similar things took place in the Welsh revival of 1905 and most recently in the Hebrides revival of 1949 where a minister began to spend Tuesday and Thursday nights in a barn with a few praying members. One night it was reported a power was let loose that shook the Hebrides. On the final night of Duncan Campbell's two-week mission, he pronounced the benediction, said a blessing, but was amazed to discover a great crowd gathered at the door, pressing into the church and crying to God for mercy. Whole families were transformed, and it was later testified that the entire island was aware of God, and it seemed as if the very air was electrified with the Spirit of God. This is a common enough event in history and in biblical history to know that God can do the same again in our day. And you ask yourself the question, well, how does it begin? What is needed? And the answer that we see here is only three things. It's in verse one. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to Asa to said to him, Hear me, Asa. The three things that come together that begin a work of God like this are firstly, the Spirit starts it. God's Holy Spirit begins it. This is never something that we initiate. It's always something that God decides to do and often in answer to earnest prayer and desire. The second factor is that the Word of God begins to awaken people's lives. That some reason, preaching that was ineffective suddenly becomes massively effective and people will hear the truth and they are immediately brought under conviction. There's the Holy Spirit, there's the preaching of the Word. And then the third factor is that God needs people who are ready. Here it's just one man, a prophet, an otherwise unknown prophet called Azariah. It's the same when Jonah went to Nineveh. It's just one guy, Jonah. Sometimes it's whole churches. But all God's needs are people who will, who will turn to him and say, God, we want to be ready to do your will in our day. Friends, will you stand with me? I think there are a number of different people who are in this room today. And I want to speak to you briefly in turn. There are some of you who are aware that your life is not right with God. And you know that when I describe the unhappiness of running after idols, you say, my life, that really describes my life. I wouldn't have used those words before, but I'm really conscious that the things I've pursued have not made me happy, have not delivered. And you're aware of that satisfaction of soul that you desire to have for yourself. And I want to urge and encourage you that even in these very moments, you can turn to God. He says, if you seek me, I will be found by you. And all it means is that you turn your face to him and ask, God, I want you. I want to worship you. I want to conform my life to you. I want your forgiveness and I want to start again. 
And maybe today would be the first day of the rest of your life, of a new life. Then there are those of you who are Christians. But you know that in a sense you have been very much a lukewarm Christian. Somebody who acknowledges with your lips that Jesus is Lord, but really your lifestyle is a denial of that fact. And Jesus is gently saying, come back to me right now. Don't you know what I can give you? Don't you know how I can restore your joy in an instant? Whatever your hurt, whatever caused you to wander, you can turn your back on those things and know him as your friend and as your savior once again today. And then there are those of us who hear this and we say, our hearts cry as God, do it again. Do it again in our city. Awaken a city and glorify yourself here in London. And up to now, as we've been speaking about the city in this series, there's been a yes in your heart. Yes, I want to be here. Yes, I want to live for Jesus. But maybe there's also been a sense of despair. The city is so big and we are so small. And what possible impact can we have? But God is showing you that you have forgotten that the major player, the one actor whose role matters today is his own, is himself. And the summons really at this point is that we would become a people who will give ourselves to prayer for the sake of our city and for the sake of our church. That God would begin revival, but that he would begin it in us, begin it in our congregation. That he would alight our hearts with a desire for him, with sincere worship. So can we turn to God in worship and prayer now? I'm going to hand out the bread and the wine as we worship. But I want to encourage you that as we worship, let's, let's give voice to our prayers to the living God. That even in our day, we would see him do this kind of work. Amen.